You're listening to Irish Radio Canada at Home and Abroad and uh, the British Isles Family History Society of Greater Ottawa have their annual conference coming up in September. And uh, as always, it's a fascinating event if you're getting into genealogy, if you're in genealogy, because you can never be far enough into genealogy. And uh, one of the participants or speakers at this and who has numerous uh, discussions going on and numerous sessions is uh, Diane Southard and Diane is uh, what she says is after getting bitten by the DNA bug as a high school student which I will have to say is rather unusual and we'll talk to uh, Diane about that um, she went on to study at the Brigham Young University where she earned a bachelor's degree in microbiology and she worked before and after graduation for the Sarsen Molecular Genealogy Foundation one of the first efforts to create a correlation genetic and genealogical database. Diane, thanks a million for coming along for a chat. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. So the first thing I'm going to say is, like, normally people don't get into the bug of DNA, genealogy, or anything like that until they kind of start to get to grey hair. How did you get mm -hmm. interested at high school? Well, I think you can chalk it up to a very motivated high school biology teacher. He was determined to give us as students a unique experience in our classroom, and he was able to procure some actual real laboratory equipment from a local laboratory, and we were uh, cloning and doing all sorts of DNA amazing advanced science as seniors in high school. So I think really more than anything, that's what gave me confidence that I could go into a scientific field and I could be successful because I, I felt like I already had experience. So that just primed me for my college years where I learned about mixing genetics and genealogy. So the, the genealogy side of it would have come along following the interest that you developed in it as a science rather than the other way around. Exactly, yes. Right, right. So when you get here uh, in September, I noticed that you are actually probably from the moment you arrive, they've got you working. They've got you going from Friday morning, um, whereas it's a full weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And um, you, you start off with a, a discussion on to try your hand on genetic genealogy on the Friday. And as I can see from the program, much of what you're covering is all into the genetics, the DNA and that type of thing. Absolutely. So that first, it's actually a workshop on Friday um, that I'm giving, and it is hands-on uh, actually working through a case study. So you don't even need your computer uh, because that makes it too complicated. We always get distracted by which buttons to push, but this is all methodology, and it's all about how to take your DNA matches and turn them into your genealogical discoveries. So you you really just get a website that has information on it from your DNA test experience. That's, that's really it. It's up to you then to figure out how to use the tools to make discoveries in your family history. And there is some methodology you can learn that I can teach you to show you how to exactly take all the matches that you have and hone them down into what I call your best matches so that you can focus and actually accomplish some family history work. Because one of the things, I've done my DNA and I've put it up on, on GEDmatch, and well, I won't say it, it has disappointed me, is I haven't really found any relatives. Um, 
So I don't know whether uh, it's just, I guess, that my relatives have never done their DNA and put it up there. But anyone that has turned up other than somebody I spoke to to do it, a close relative, uh, they're way down and I don't even recognize names. So um, here am I kind of out in the ocean of genealogy and not knowing where to turn. Can you help in, in that type of a scenario? Absolutely. So what I'm going to teach you about all the buoys around you out there in the ocean that mark your path. So a lot of people feel exactly the same way you do. You get the test because somebody said you should or or you just were interested in what you could find and then you're left wondering, I have no idea what I'm supposed to even do with this. So you mentioned, for one, that you have some relatives that you have convinced to test and they're matching you there in the database. They're actually a very solid buoy. So I teach you how to use the matches that you recognize to identify the people that you don't recognize. So that's one key area that most people nowadays recognize at least one person on their match list. And sometimes they're a little unimpressed. Maybe you see this guy and like, oh, yeah, that's, that's Rob. I know him. And you're like, so what? I already knew who that was. But instead you should be, this is so cool. It is so cool that I did not tell the database that Rob was my cousin, and yet here he is. He's showing up, and he's showing up as my cousin. That is amazing, and we shouldn't let that miracle of genetics pass us by. But instead, harness that power and use it to answer questions about your relationship, not to Rob that you already know, but to any relative that you share in common with Rob, any ancestor that you might be interested in researching that you and Rob share in common, Rob's DNA is the key to helping you figure that out. Okay. So then I see uh, you come along on Saturday on Saturday, and you start into, and I love the title, Shoulda, Coulda, Woulda, uh, a look at ethics in genetic genealogy. What's Shoulda, Coulda, Woulda? Well, I think as more and more people test, more and more of us are having these experiences wondering if we did the right thing by testing because a lot of people are finding out information that is unexpected, whether it's an unexpected ethnicity or an unexpected relative. More and more, we're going to find these hiccups in what we thought we knew. And how do you approach those situations? How do you move on? How do you connect with people? We're going to cover the whole gamut of your experience and try to make some, at least if we're not making decisions, we're at least having good discussions about what you need to be thinking about, and if you're already in a situation like this, maybe what your best next steps could be. Now, the word ethics appears in this. Um, what are the ethical issues that could surround this? Well, I think a big one is, like you yourself, you've convinced someone to test, which is great. And it sounds like everything worked out fine, and let's say your cousin really is Rob, and you and Rob come out as first cousins, everything's good. But what if he didn't? What if he tested and he doesn't show up on your match page? Now you told Rob to test, and now you're faced with a very ethical situation. How or should you tell Rob that you guys aren't matching? If he's not interested at all, he's not looking at the test results, what's your obligation to him? Letting him know that he's genetically not who he thinks he is? So there's a lot of people in this situation where they've convinced someone to test and things aren't working out like we anticipated, and now you're left wondering what to do. Another situation is you find a new match on your match page, someone you don't know, and you realize that this is a relative, a child of one of your relatives that nobody knows about. 
you're the one to make this discovery. What is your responsibility to do with this information? So given that this is a relatively new field, can you see then that these type of scenarios will ultimately end up being legislated for? That is an excellent question, and I think it is something that people are tossing around right now, definitely. Um, the problem is, how would you regulate it? And I think that's where our, our regulators are, are having trouble. Like, what, where is the line, and what, what can they really say? Um, especially here in the U.S., there have been a lot of cases now that are, are falling in the hands of law enforcement and how they're using our DNA databases to solve crimes. Where's the ethical value in that, and where do we draw lines there? So, yes, I think that eventually there will be some someone somewhere saying, let's make some laws here. But for right now, we're, we're in the Wild West. There, there aren't any laws, or there are very few laws regulating how this all works. So then I see you move on, um, and you're going to talk about a day out with your, your DNA. And again, lovely, lovely titles to these things. What's a day out with? Thanks. What's a day out with? Well, so you mentioned that you got tested at a testing company, and then you took your DNA out of that testing company, and you put it into JetMatch. So we're going to talk about why you might want to do that, might, why you might not want to do that, and where are the other places you and your DNA can go. Once you've been tested at a testing company, they provide you with uh, what we call a raw data file. It's this file of information. You can take your file and you can put it in other places. So how do you do that responsibly and what might be the pros and cons of, of going out with your DNA? I see. Now, that also... Um because I know you then talk about um, getting into the Y-DNA. Uh, and one of the issues I've come up against is, I suppose, that uh, because I haven't found a lot of names, or really any names that I recognize other than the one aunt that I suggested do her DNA, um, because I haven't found any names I recognize, I'm saying, well, okay, I did an autosomal test. Um, and someone has suggested to me I should do a Y-test. Um, do these things become relevant? Well, first of all, um, instead of being disappointed that you're not seeing names you recognize, you should be excited. Because if you have any holes in your family tree, then seeing a name you don't recognize is exactly what you want because you don't know the name of the person you're looking for. So that individual that you're matching that you don't recognize any of their family names, they just might be holding the family name you're missing. So get excited when you see matches you don't recognize instead of disappointed. That's tip number one. Tip, go ahead. No, I'm saying, oh, I'm excited about all the names I'm, I don't recognize. I just wish I could find one I do. Yeah, well, that's true. And, and there's there's a mixture, definitely. Um, but the Y-DNA test, um, yeah, totally different kind of DNA test, but very valuable, I think very worthwhile. I encourage every man to have their Y-DNA tested. I think it can be very impactful in your family history. And uh, there are different companies, and they focus on the different testing methodologies for autosomal or Y? Exactly, yeah. Right, okay. Um, so, <laughs> um, so we've now talked about getting into the genetic side of it. Now, as you say, at high school, you played around with, um, or your, your teacher encouraged you to explore the scientific side of it. At what point would you say that that transitioned from being 
a science into this side of it, into the family, uh, the genealogy and the family history side of things? Well, that happened when I was in college, and I was working on um, a project. I was volunteering in the laboratory of Dr. Scott Woodward, and we were working on ancient Egyptian mummy DNA, which was really, really fun. And the problem was that we had this ancient DNA from these burials, this burial site. Um, it's about 60 miles outside of Cairo in Egypt. But unfortunately, there was no town near this cemetery, which was unheard of. Every other town had their own cemetery just outside town borders, and that's how people did things back then. But this, this was a cemetery in the middle of nowhere with no surrounding town. We had no idea who these people were. So there was a lot of work being done, archaeological work, but our side was the DNA side. So we were extracting DNA from these ancient Egyptian mummies, and we were using mitochondrial DNA to try to figure out connections between people. My professor, Scott Woodward, he was like, man, wouldn't it be great if we had a database of the world's mitochondrial DNA so that we could compare these people to this world database and be able to tell who they were? Because all we had was them. We didn't have the world to compare them to. This was back in 2000. And so Scott was able to get some funding um, from a local philanthropist named Jim Sorensen and say, let's do this. Let's create a genetic genealogy database. And this was the first effort to do that ever. Before any of the testing companies, there was the Sorensen Molecular Genealogy Foundation. So our job then became to build this database. So as a college student, on my weekends, while other students were doing all manner of um, relaxation, I was traveling and working, and I would speak to anybody who would listen, and maybe some of your listeners actually submitted samples to the Sorensen Molecular Genealogy Foundation, but we would travel and we would collect DNA samples and four-generation pedigree charts, and we built the first genetic genealogy database. So that's when it came together for me was, was working on that project. So when you talk in those terms, and this is one of the fascinating things about DNA, like, you know, we talk uh, in terms of, uh, let's say, um, uh, atomic uh, radiation and things, and things have a half-life and everything else. Is there a life on a DNA? In other words, at some point, does the value of DNA cease to be traceable or anything or ana that you can't analyze it? That is a great question. So just like other things you've mentioned, DNA does have a molecular clock that can be read so that you can tell how old certain parts of your DNA are. So in a modern human, we've got parts of our DNA that are really, really old and parts that aren't really, really old. And so we have this mixture. So for family history purposes, when we're comparing our DNA with each other, there is definitely a limit that we can reach. So with our autosomal DNA test, your autosomal DNA, because of the way it's inherited, can really only help you make connections back about five or six generations. It, it will not help you beyond that with the current technology. It's too hard to tell who's who. Now, Y-DNA and mitochondrial DNA, the other two kinds of DNA tests, they, on the other hand, can go back much farther because they don't have the same inheritance pattern as autosomal DNA. So your Y and your mitochondrial can help you make connections back 10 or 12 generations, but the autosomal is much, has a much shorter life. 
well, what I'm asking in a way is, um, you know, when you said that you were looking at the DNA from ancient Egypt, what I'm saying is, yeah. so if somebody finds a fossil or something um, that is a thousand years old, is the DNA still alive or whatever the appropriate term would be in that scenario? Yeah. So it definitely is. It's just degraded, which is why mitochondrial DNA is the best and easiest kind of DNA to use on ancient DNA samples. Because for every cell in your body, you have one copy of autosomal DNA and hundreds of copies of mitochondrial DNA. So there's just so much more of it that it's a lot easier for us to get mitochondrial DNA profiles from an ancient sample than autosomal DNA. However, scientists are getting really, really good at getting autosomal DNA from very small amounts of DNA or very old DNA. So it used to be impossible. You used to just say, nope, we can't do it. We can't get autosomal DNA from that thousand-year-old sample. It's not going to happen. But they can now. And that technology is what's pushing this science forward also, is the ability to look at these samples that Previously, you just couldn't get at with autosomal DNA. So that would imply that over a period of time, uh, and certainly if science is progressing at the rate you're saying, that it will be possible fairly soon to actually track human migration going back thousands of years. Absolutely. So they're already doing it using mitochondrial and Y-DNA. This is a huge, huge field of academic study, and it has been for many years. So there are, there's a lot of information about human migration based on Y and mitochondrial DNA. Now, there's also, like I said, now this new science of using autosomal DNA to do the same thing. So one of the papers I was just reading recently about Neanderthal DNA, for example, there's been this question, did the Neanderthal uh, intermix with the Homo sapien, the humans, right? Or did we live kind of these parallel lives and then eventually the humans just took over and Neanderthals died out? Or did the humans assimilate, just kind of genetically capture Neanderthal DNA? So by doing these autosomal DNA studies now, they can tell that, yes, we did interbreed, that almost every human on Earth does have a Neanderthal direct line ancestor. It, it, yeah. it is fascinating when you think in terms of uh, that it is possible to go that far back in the history of the human. Oh, yes. Amazing. Yeah. It is amazing. So, in a way, you, can, uh, even though, um, that, well, it's a new science about an old story, and every day you're potentially finding out something new. So, in a lot of ways, even though it's history, it's very exciting history. Absolutely. I love that. You said it perfectly. This is new science about an old story. So, indeed. So, all I can say is everything you've said to me if, is telling me that um, every, all your lectures, all your papers, uh, are. I can only say, sound like it's going to be a fascinating conference. Um, and I'm sure, uh, have you been up here before? Have you, have you managed to attend any of these conferences before? This will be my first time up there. Okay, because these uh, are very well attended, and I know that they're always uh, very uh, good subject matters and great speakers, so I'm sure you'll have a fantastic time up here. Uh, it's been fascinating chatting with you, Diane, and um, I, I'm sure, as I said, that you'll find that the trip up here 
rewarding and satisfying and I know anyone who sits in to listen on your papers will also find it very rewarding and satisfying and I want to thank you for taking the time to have a chat and uh, spending a few minutes with us today. Thank you. It was entirely my pleasure. Thank you, Diane.